0: Welcome to the latest episode in our Herbert Smith Freehills Public M&A podcast series. My name is Antonia Kirkby and I'm joined today by Mark Bardell, one of our Public M&A partners. Today we're going to be talking about the proposals by the Takeover Panel to amend the definition of acting in concert in the Takeover Code. And whilst the final changes haven't yet been published, the consultation has closed and it's probably unlikely we'll see any significant changes in detail. And it's really important for parties to understand the rules, even if they aren't planning on undertaking any public m and right now. So uh, acting in concert is a really core cool concept under the code and is really important for a number of reasons. So, Mark, should we just start talking about what acting in concert actually means and why it matters?
1: Sure. I guess the first thing to say is that acting in concert isn't a bad thing, Uh, so the first thing really to understand is it's not a label of criminal or bad behaviour, it's really just a vehicle for the rules of the takeover code to be applied. So I would say that any court or regulator needs the ability to aggregate the positions of different parties who are in fact coordinating things among themselves. And this is the panel's version of that. So, what exactly does it mean? Well, the way the takeover panel define acting in concert uh, is by reference to parties who are cooperating to obtain or consolidate control of a company. And remember that the takeover panel is all about transactions for control of a company and they set control at of the voting rights exercisable in a company. Why do they do that? They know that 50% is statutory control for English-incorporated companies, that's the level at which you can pass an ordinary resolution, appoint and remove directors, all those kind of things, Um, but because of passive investments, shareholder apathy, not everybody turns up to a general meeting, so there's a level beneath 50% at which you can exercise effective control. And for decades, the panel has struck a line in the sand at 30% for that. So acting in concert, people who are acting together around control, around that 30% margin, what specifically does it mean in practice? Well, first, It's whether or not a mandatory takeover offer is is triggered. Um, Secondly, the rules applicable during the course of a live bid, um, which relate to minimum level of acceptance or forms of consideration um, that have to be offered, and rules applicable outside of a bid, um, disclosure of dealings, those those kind of points. Uh, So that's, that's what it means and what it's all about.
0: And who does the panel um, treat as acting in concert under the code?
1: So the panel will look first and foremost to a factual test. So who who are the parties, under their definition, who are cooperating to obtain or consolidate control? But in addition to that factual test, um, they have a series of rules to speed things up, so they have to look endlessly at the facts. And so, on the one hand, they deem certain parties to be acting in concert um, and a party is deemed to be acting in concert with affiliates. um, And that's where you have actual control. And then there are a series of presumptions that certain people will be presumed to be acting in concert. And these presumptions, in theory, can be rebutted by a different set of facts. But it gives the panel a kind of ready reckoner um, as to whether you're acting in concert or not. Most importantly, it moves the burden of proof onto the parties seeking to rebut a presumption so that the panel can, as the regulator, can apply the presumption, uh, presume that the people are acting in concert and throw the problem over to the people in question to disprove that they are, as a matter of fact, not acting in concert. And this consultation paper is all about the presumptions.
0: And before we get into the detail of what the, the changes actually are, uh, being proposed, what are the panels seeking to do with these changes? Why are they putting forward these, these changes?
1: So they are really trying to do two things. Um, the first is to codify existing practice that has developed in the application of these presumptions and the application of their rules in different fact patterns. Um, so the first purpose is just codification and the second is they are making some changes. So in particular uh, around the rules as applied to funds and what the panel are saying through this consultation process is the way the book and the rules was originally written was focusing on corporate structures Over time, funds are more and more prevalent in anything to do with bids and life in general, um, and therefore the rulebook needs to catch up and apply consistent principles across corporate structures and fund structures. Um, So the changes are by and large logical extensions of of what the rules or the spirit of the rules has always been, but making it clearer uh, for market participants to better understand how this rather nebulous and factual um, concept of acting in concert applies in real life scenarios. So that codification and clarification is very welcome in in my opinion.
0: So should we move on now to start looking at some of the actual detailed changes they're proposing? Um, Should we start with what they're going to do with groups of companies and who will be acting in concert within a group of companies?
1: Sure, and I think even as you ask the question, you rightly start with companies because that's how the panel executive, the takeover panel, think about these things. So I think that is always the right starting point is to sort of draw analogies with corporate structures. And a key change here is that um, the presumption around groups of companies, uh, they are raising the threshold from 20% um equity interest in a company to 30% um, equity interest as a presumption of acting in concert within group structures. Why are they doing that? Well, 30% is their control threshold and they're making it logically consistent. So removing in their minds an anomaly that you, you had within group structures, a 20% threshold that, that would apply. And importantly, they will look at both voting rights and equity interests. And there's a slight difference here, or an important difference, um, and that's because with regard to voting rights, um, the panel will not, as they put it, dilute indirect interests. So what they mean there is that if there's 30% of voting rights, You pass that step and you move through to consider whether the next company is acting in concert and you apply a 30% threshold. So it's a binary answer when you're applying that leg of the test. They'll also look at equity interests, but with equity interests, you know, that don't carry voting rights, they will dilute. So if you start at the top and you move through 50%, then you move down to another 50%, The net result is only 25%, as opposed to being on the voting test, a yes and a yes for both those tests. They're also, um, again, consistent with their logic elsewhere in the rules, capturing long derivative positions and option positions. Uh, So when they're applying voting rights and equity interests, they will consider long positions and options and, and frankly any derivative that's consistent with how disclosure has been applied under the takeover code rule 8 now for you know well over a decade and so they consider that to be a, a logical extension of the rules too um, and they want to apply these rules to individuals limited partnerships trusts Um, and and any other structures or persons in exactly the same way.
0: Thanks, Mark. Um, So should we move on now to talk about what the the changes they're making around the presumptions around fund managers?
1: Certainly. So I, I think on fund managers that they are really codifying and clarifying where I believe they've been for some time. Uh, which is the fund manager is treated as interested in the shares which it manages on a discretionary basis. So what is discretion? Well, for these purposes, the panel looks at discretion um, as being uh, discretion on buy and sell decisions, so dealing, um, decisions around voting and decisions around whether or not to accept an offer. Um, And those are the the key elements of the discretion that they will decide as to whether a particular manager has discretion or not. Um, The clients of that fund manager are then not treated as being interested in those shares which the fund manager manages on a discretionary basis. Uh, so that that's how it will work in relation
0: to fund managers.: And that actually does seem pretty logical, doesn't it? Um, next up, should we talk about investment trusts and inv- other investment companies?:
1: Sure. So um, investment trusts uh, they are going to be treated as interested in the shares of a company subject to the code which are held or invested in by the investment trust. The investment manager is also going to be treated as being interested in those same shares, which the trust is invested into. Um, And any person who controls the investment trust, and control is 30% or more of the voting rights or majority of the equity share capital um, are also presumed to be acting in concert. Um, And if a person owns 30% or more of the equity share capital of that investment trust, they are also going to be presumed to be acting in concert um, with the trust um, and the manager, uh, consistent with this idea that it's always 30% and even passive and equity interests are are relevant to these tests, whether you're looking at corporates or funds. So that's the broad sweep of of how things would apply to investment
0: trusts as well. And then finally, should we move on to funds? And I think This is, I think you'll agree with me, the area where it's possibly the most more complex and harder to understand. But um, do you want to try and unpack what they're doing for us in this area, please?
1: Sure. I I think the easiest way to think about it um, is that a fund should be treated in exactly the same way as a corporate structure. So it's open to parties to structure things however they like, of course. But the panel would say whether you choose, choose an incorporated structure or whether you choose a a fund, LPGP, by which I mean limited partner, general partner structure, the same principle should apply. So if you think about it in that way, that's logical, I would say it's sensible and and you can then make sense of how the rules apply. In the facts of any given situation, because there's many different ways uh, funds and structures are put together. It can get quite factually complicated, but if you hang on to those principles, that's how you can make sense of it. So the first thing to think about is, I think, imagine you are running a series of funds. Um, You want to make sure that you don't accidentally trigger Rule 9, or if you do trigger Rule 9 and want to make a mandatory bid, you, you do it deliberately and knowingly. Um, and Therefore, in that context, if you own 30% or more of limited partner interests in a fund, uh, then you need to aggregate um, your interests with those of the fund to assess whether you've triggered a mandatory bid. Um, also, in that regard, in a similar vein, if you're an investment manager or an investment advisor to the fund, Um, and really you're the one making the decisions in relation to what that fund does, uh, then you will also need to aggregate your own positions with the positions of the fund itself to determine whether or not you trigger a a mandatory bid. Um, Another scenario to think about is, if you are managing a group of funds, you're sitting there, and somebody else makes a takeover offer for a company in which you are interested, then you'll need to consider your disclosure obligations under Rule Eight. And again, those same aggregation principles will apply. Um, the, the 30% passive interest, the question about control through being the manager and advisor, investment advisor to the fund, again. You need to think about aggregation and your aggregated rule eight position. The next scenario, the last scenario I'll talk about is when you are managing group funds and you yourself want to make an offer or participate in an offer. In theory as well, it applies if you're receiving an offer uh, in exactly the same way. But if you're in that last category, you're a listed fund governed by the code. And whilst there are lots of those, I would argue in practice there are many more funds acting on the buy side who want to make a bid and participate in consortia. So focusing mainly on the buy side and and the bids, then if you are a fund investing in a new SPV or bid co for the purpose of making the offer, then you are acting in concert with that bid co. And I think that would come as a surprise to nobody, That that's why you're participating in the way that you are. Um, also, by extension, if you're an investment manager um, to a bidder or a target vehicle, uh, together with any other entity that, that that is controlled by the investment manager, or controlling the investment manager uh, then you ought to be considered to be acting in concert with with the bid vehicle as well um, and, and again the decision to make the investment into the consortium will be made by that investment manager and then by extension what else it controls gets brought in so I think that again is logical and consistent with these principles. If you then think Behind that, so what about other investors who sit behind the immediate um, investors into the consortium and into the bid vehicle? So you're, you're going back up the tree if you put it in a, in a diagram. Well, imagine now you're an LP investor in a fund which is itself participating in a consortium to make a bid for a, a code company. Then you need to think whether you have a a diluted or see-through indirect interest in 30% or more of the um, equity share capital in the BIDCO. If that is the case, then even though you're up the tree, as it were, and and your interests are indirect, then you can get drawn into the concert party. Um, Similarly, if you don't have voting rights or equity uh, control, but you've got more than 50% of the passive interests um, of the funds up the tree, then you're going to get drawn into the definition of the concert party as well. Where all of this gets really complicated is when you're dealing with a large um, private equity sponsor that's participating in a consortium. And the question arises now, and and it always does on those kind of LBO bids with PE sponsor participants, to what extent do you um, treat the whole empire of that PE sponsor as acting in concert with that particular bidder? Um, And because these organisations are so large, that can become a factually complex and, and burdensome investigation to work out whether anybody within the empire, as I'm putting it, has got any interest in the target company that you're trying to make a bid for. So in that respect, um, the the panel has a starting position um, to work out how many of those um, investee companies get captured or not. The most important rule is that if you've got a 10 percent or less in the consortium, then the panel will not ask you to aggregate the rest of the empire. So for those PE sponsors participating in a consortium, if your consortium level of participation is 10% or less, you dodge this whole question. Um, If you are in the zone of more than 10 um, but less than 30 Then the panel may agree to waive uh, the presumption and not treat that particular investee as brought within the net, uh, depending on the circumstances. So in, uh, I would say what they really mean by that. If it's a normal kind of 10 to 30% investment, then the panel would start with the position that they're not to be aggregated. But if it's a 30% or more investment, into that investing company, then the panel says that investing company ought to be considered within the net of the definition of acting in concert. And again, that's for reasons of consistency with this definition of control of 30%. That is a change and that's important to note. It's down in the weeds and in the detail of all of this, uh, but the panel's previous practice um, was to apply 50%, i.e., a sort of notion of statutory majority control of an investee company, and only at 50% would it be brought within the net. So now it's, it's lowered that to 30%. So if you want to look at this holistically, in some senses, parties in the market kind of win and, and get aggregated less because in the normal group structure, 20s move to 30. Uh, but in this respect for the wider PE group, 50 has moved down to 30, so there's a, a sort of loss if you want to put it that way. Uh But net net, it's more logical and consistent, Uh so th- the rules as reconfigured do very much have that in their favour. Uh, at the end of all of that, there's an awful lot of detail. But I think just come back to the principles, it's all about control, 30% is key, and bear in mind that you look at all structures in exactly the same way, and bear in mind that equity control, voting control um, is all about 30% on a binary basis, but even passive investments, um, just investment exposure, LP interests, the classic example. Um, Those still are relevant and need to be diluted through structures to work out whether or not you fall within the definition of acting in concept or not. And I think if you hang on to those principles then you can work it out, albeit that in any given case it might be factually complicated as to how these things do work through.
0: Thank you, Mark. That was really helpful. Um, it, it is, it, yeah, it's just a question of working it through, as you say. And if people find pictures easier than words to follow, there are some really helpful diagrams in the panel's consultation paper, which kind of helps express in, it, visually how, how these things apply in practice. And the Takeover panel also did a useful webinar earlier this year on the proposals, and that's available on its consultation page on its website, so worth having a look at that. Um, we've also published a briefing which is available on our Herbert Smith Freehills website for those of you who want to read a bit more about it. Um, in terms of timing, as I said, the consultation is closed. We're expecting the changes by the end of this year, 2022, and um, they w- will then come into force two months later as a proposal in the consultation paper, at least. So. Um, as I said earlier, though, unlikely to change in detail and really worth getting on top of what is happening and what you need to understand within groups and, and funds right now, I'd say. Um, thank you very much again, Mark. That was very much appreciated. Thank you too to our listeners for joining us today. We'd really welcome any feedback or thoughts you have on our public MA and podcast and any areas you'd like to see discussed in future episodes. Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us on our next one. Thanks very much and goodbye.